Festive greetings and welcome to the BJ360 December podcast. My name is Sarah Gill and I'm delighted to be your host. Thank you for joining us, either on your commute, a quiet minute at work, or even some downtime over Christmas and the new year. For news, updates and 360 content, please follow us on Twitter at BoneJoin360. This is, of course, the last podcast of the year and it seemed like a good opportunity to catch up with colleagues across the UK. So we've compiled a virtual panel of orthopods and asked them for their reflections on the last year, their 2020 vision. We wanted to hear about the lessons that they've learned, what they'd be taking into 2021, be them technical, organisational or even philosophical. It feels impossible right now to have a conversation without mentioning the C word, but I promise that the content of this podcast is about innovation and moving forward. And I'm confident that the group of people we've got lined up will bring just that. So please join me as I disturb loads of busy people during the preparation for their festive break and ask them an impossibly broad question. I'd like to kick off our podcast uh, this month by dialing in with Tim Coughlin, whose voice will become familiar to you over 2021. Uh, Tim is an upper limb trauma surgeon at Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham. He's the orthopaedic undergraduate teaching lead for Nottingham Medical School, and he's joining the 360 podcast team in the new year. Uh, So Tim, it's great to have you on board and to put you to work straight away. Sounds good. Mm. <laughs> when we talked about uh, this episode, um, we wanted to hear from a variety of different perspectives on uh, matters that have really spoken to them in 2020. And I think yours is a really interesting one. Well, so, I mean, I've been a consultant for well, just under a year now. And I think there's just a few reflections that I've got over my first year that I think are useful to hear, perhaps if you're in your latter stages of training or on fellowship, or if you're in, indeed, if you're in your first year yourself. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I guess what I was going to start with is that you spend so long, you know, 20 years probably getting from medical school all the way to that consultant job. And to some degree, you sort of imagine that's going to be an end point. You know, it feels like you're there. And I guess that's to some degree the way the training's designed. But you learn quite quickly that actually nothing has really changed as soon as you begin become a consultant apart from the level of responsibility you have to take and so I remember my first list as a as a consultant I had a 3c open distal humerus fracture and halfway through the case when it's getting tricky it dawned on me that actually probably for the first time there wasn't someone you know in the coffee room or someone keeping a distant eye and I think (laughs) well it just it seems odd to say now but it's almost an imperceptible layer of protection which has suddenly disappeared and you know the case went fine in the end but I think that, you know, over that following few weeks, I realized that um, doing all the right things like picking the right jobs in the latter half of training and doing, you know, working hard on fellowship, you get all that experience. But actually, there's still a load of operations that you've done very little of or indeed you may never have done. And suddenly people are potentially expecting you to do. And so I think that one of the key things for me, which I've picked up early on, is you have to have a mentor and you have to identify them early on. I think I've been quite lucky, you know, working in a supportive unit and there's more than one person that I can rely on to discuss cases with. 
but I don't I don't feel any concern now you know arranging my list so that if there's something coming up that I know that's on the borderline of what I can do I arrange someone to be there effectively in the coffee room you know a consultant colleague and I've become much more relaxed about just phoning a friend during the operation if I'm not convinced it's the right thing or if I'm just not sure I think that that's fine and that's perhaps not something I'd expected early on. Just, you know, you don't really expect that to be the way it was, but that's been my experience. And I think one of the other things is if you don't know who your mentor should be, you've got to ask yourself who's going to revise this if it all goes horribly wrong. And my advice would be that person's probably the person (laughs) who should be your mentor. Does that sound fair? Yeah. Do you know, that's really interesting. Um, Exactly the same, you know, um, you know, as you say, when you're on the edge of your comfort zone um, and um, you are doing something that, as you say, you've been trained to do, you've been you've been told how to do and things, but now you're having to get on and do it. Yeah, the person whose advice I ask is, is the person who might inherit this um, yeah. if there's a problem, because then I, I can think, well, you know, I got their perspective early on and they are usually, as you say, the most helpful person, for sure. And actually, if you if you ask their advice, you do have to follow it. I think that's another top tip because that's the person who's going to bail you out. So you do have to take advice when given, I would say. Yeah, I think, yeah, do you know, I I think that's really like, because obviously we're we're in the same boat. You know, I started as a consultant um, in uh, March this year, having just left, obviously, Queen's. and still uh, contact those guys for advice about cases and stuff. Um, so yeah, a lot of what you're saying absolutely speaks to me and you realize that the destination is not so much as a destination, it's just another stop on a journey. And actually, yeah, ex- yeah exactly. Uh, and, and you don't suddenly, you know, sort of magic into something else overnight. It is just a progression of where you've been going. Um, and you've got to go on the way. Yeah, um, well. Here's to Thank 2021 you. then. Um, Here's to 2021. It's going to be yeah. a good year. Um, I'm, I'm excited about it. And, I, you know, as you said, um, uh, I think all of those realisations, they come to you in some form or other, don't they, in the first year. So it's kind of cool to hear someone else uh, talk about the same things. I think so. And the only other thing I'd like to say is make sure you enjoy it because actually it's easy to get lost in it and you suddenly realise you're a few months in and actually you just take a breath and you can enjoy it. And I think that um, it's easy to just get lost in the sort of, you know, the the busyness of it and actually just take a step back and realise that you have achieved something to get there. And, uh, you know, that is an important thing to do. Uh, do you know, I think we're all kind of guilty of that, you know, you, 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 you know, you're so sort of task focused, you know, you've got your sort of, you know, you're, you're, you're facing the, well, you're at the call face and you're so busy doing that you forget that how much you love what you're doing, that you do need to take some like, satisfaction and and as you say just enjoy the journey along the way uh, I'm uh, yeah I, th- I think we're all quite guilty of that and probably the first bit where you you know spend quite a lot of your time you know pretty stressed is is, is maybe the worst time for it so I think that's that's well that's good advice good advice to anyone and definitely as you say the guys coming up to that sort of stage so thanks for sharing that Tim and I'm super Thank excited you about you joining the uh the podcast team and for having uh, me on board I'm looking forward to it yeah awesome right well um I will let you get back to I don't know, making your mince pies. Exactly your that. Work. Exactly yeah. that. Awesome. <laughs> Catch up with you soon, Tim. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. My next guest is Bilal Jamal, who is in fact my friend from work. Uh, Bilal works with me at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow. In another life, he was a highly trained foot and ankle surgeon, but let's be honest, his 
the main love of his life is low limb reconstruction. Uh, he's got a big frames practice here in Glasgow and he has been instrumental actually in the development of our post-CCT fellowships here at the QE. Uh, he's an all-round good guy and I really wanted to get you on Bilal today, um, uh, get you on the call to tell us what have you taken away from 2020? What have you learned? What's your 2020 vision? Thanks for the invitation, Sarah. Um, I suppose I've learned a few things, but one of the things which has perhaps changed my clinical practice the most relates to fracture-related infection. Mm -hmm. I get a fair few patients who have critical-sized bone defects and soft tissue defects to go with that as well. You're welcome. And um, in my <laughs> practice, um, that is usually a, at least a two-stage operation where there's debridement and then there's soft tissue coverage and definitive fixation of whatever sort you believe in. But one of the things that we've struggled with is access to theatre, with redeployment of staff to ITU and yeah, so on and yeah, so yeah. forth. Yeah. So I suppose we've modulated our practice somewhat and we're going down more of the route of one stage surgery in selected patients. Interesting, right. So that is a big departure from normal practice, you know, and there's... Uh, understand there's a bit of um, there's a sparsity really of evidence and literature relating to that so how have you been able to transition into that how can you pick winners how do you pick the patients that you know what gives you confidence to say that this person is suitable for a single stage reconstruction I think there's a few factors I think the first thing is that over the past year for all kinds of reasons there's a lot more joint orthoplastic operating here so it means that you've got a multitude of of senior decision makers present right. at the same time. Yep. And what we're all doing together is a much better and more aggressive debridement of the fracture and of the soft tissues as well. And I think that's probably the most important factor actually. Okay. Um, but there are other factors as well. There are some patients, you look at them and you think they're physiologically good specimens, that they have good immune responses to the situation and that they have sensitive organisms. And they, I think, are guys that will do well with a one-stage operation. But if you don't meet those parameters, then I think a two-stage operation remains the gold standard. That's a really clear message. So basically, it's senior decision-makers with orthoplastics involved. It's good physiology for patients and it's known organisms. Absolutely, um, yeah. That's, so, well, that's a really interesting thing. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Um, I well, look forward to seeing firsthand how that goes in 2021 and you taking that forward. Um, but thanks very much for joining us on the call today and uh, I'll let you get back to your, uh, well, your, probably your ward round, actually. Should I let you get a backpack? Thanks so much, Stephen. Thanks very much, Bilal. Okay, so I'm continuing my round of calls with my next guest, and he really needs no introduction. Lyndon Mason was awarded the Hunterian Professorship from the Royal College in 2019, and what this man doesn't know about ankle fractures and the posterior malleolus really isn't worth discussing. If you haven't already checked out his BOA lecture, the best gift you can give yourself this Christmas is to do just that. Uh, Professor Mason is the BOFAS Outcome Committee Chairperson-Elect and is Orthopaedic Teaching Lead at the University of Liverpool. Lyndon, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to join us on our festive uh, set of phone calls. Uh, I'm really interested to hear about this significant body of work from 2020. Oh, thank you very much. Your introduction is uh, too kind. <laughs> Deliberately uh, so. This is, this is how we butter people up, you know. So, yeah, the, the biggest body of work for 2020 for us uh, was the UK Falcon audit. Um, it was the largest audit in foot and ankle uh, to date, really. Uh, it's been, a, it's been a, a massive body of work, um, but it has changed our thinking quite a lot in foot and ankle. And this I, is going to be published in 2021, so we're getting a bit of a jump on this. 
Yeah, yeah. So this this is uh, currently under review in the BJJ and foot and ankle surgery, um, and then there's going to be a second phase that will be completed in um, January, and we will be looking to publish it after that. Awesome. So if if we can get uh, some uh, some headlines, some summary, that would be uh, in your own words, that'd be that would be very interesting. That's great. Um, firstly, obviously, I'd like to acknowledge my co-leads, uh, Jit Mangwani from Leicester and Karen. Um, Malhotra from Stanmo, and also all the participant units. Um, so for me, when the initial COVID surge trial, which was a phenomenal bit of work, uh, was published, we were told that there was a 24% 30-day mortality rate uh, for if you caught COVID at the time of surgery. However, for us, uh, well, for me personally, it was really difficult to... Uh, use that in a consenting process with patients. Right. The patients came in and you give them, well, if you have surgery, there's a 25% chance of death. They were, what's the chance of me catching COVID? Um, we, and we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, and this was ubiquitous across the foot and ankle world, really, is that you can't really compare a bunion to a bowel resection for cancer, a very different right. patient. So it didn't really help us with the consenting process. So what we tried to do was try and find, well, what was the instance of foot and ankle surgery? And also, was this 30-day mortality rate different? So we had a meeting uh, with the... So I was a committee member for BOFAS uh, Outcomes Committee at the time. Uh, we put expression interest to all the BOFAS members. And initially, we did have 70 centres that uh, expressed an interest. And in the end, 43 actually finally participated and mm-hmm. uh, gave us the data... Uh, within that uh, period of time. Uh, some some centres were just taking a little bit too long, and I think we lost them for that, but we need to get it out as soon as we could, really. So at the end, we actually got 6,644 uh, 6, patients um, from the time period of January to July, and across that entire period, we had 35 cases of perioperative COVID, which works out as 0.53%. However, as it was significant time and region variability. Uh, for example, uh, most regions uh, prior to the UK lo- lockdown in March, that's when they had their peaks. Yeah. Uh, but some regions, uh, such as the southeast, which is the worst affected, their peak actually hit mid-lockdown. So if you're only testing certain area, certain time periods, you're going to miss uh, uh, cases. Like for example, uh, there was a similar study done in Upper Limb. Uh, by uh, uh, the author's dean from Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, they only used April. Now, if we only used April for our data collection, we would have missed about 80% of our uh, cases. Right. So it was quite obvious that uh, different regions peaked at different times. Uh, down in the southeast, they had the highest cumulative uh, value of 3%, or just over 3%. So 3% of those who were undergoing foot and ankle surgery uh, caught COVID. Yeah, so you, as you say, massive regional variation, 3% versus an average of 0.53. Yeah, and uh, you know, in, in the peripheries, so I, and say, sorry to call uh, Scotland periphery, but I mean the peripheral parts of the, of the UK. <laughs> <laughs> um, Scotland didn't have any cases uh, presented. Northern Ireland didn't have any cases presented. Uh, the Cornwall didn't have any cases presented. There was uh, very few cases in Wales. Uh, but they all seem to be uh, southeast in origin. That's where the majority, mm-hmm. and then almost like a band going up through the, the middle and then up uh, the north uh, west. Um, so this was a, 
massive um, body of you know national data that you've collected. Uh, was there anything else that you can you know? Was there, were there any other interesting findings uh, in relation to that uh, with the, sort of the primary aim? Yeah, so we we also could see the. Uh, the difference in uh, trauma practice, elective practice, and we also included uh, diabetic uh, foot and ankle surgery, so the emergency mm. diabetic foot and ankle surgery. Um, and when we found that the obviously the elective uh, practice plummeted around uh, lockdown, but the modeling, uh, the two papers have been published about modeling where they actually assumed that we would then get straight back to normal after a period of lockdown, but that, that obviously didn't occur mm -hmm. and you can see this very very slow trend of trying to uh, increase elective practice when after lockdown the trauma and diabetic surgery returned to normal we feel it's probably that there was a uh, resource resources have been switched from the elective practice to the emergency practices um, the other thing is that the, the this was one of our primary outcomes but mortality uh, we found was 25% in the COVID positive patients. So these 35 patients, there was a 25% death, death rate, which was the same as the COVID surge trial. So we were no different. So we really shouldn't be seeing ourselves as someone different. And also the, the blue and green pathways, um, there was a trend of less uh, cases in the green pathways, mm -hmm. but there was no significant difference statistically. Therefore, for, for Nankle, it was safer in the green pathway, but it's definitely not safe. So, um, yeah, with massive implication, actually, in terms of, you know, trying to return, as you say, to normal, normal elective services. Yeah. That is a fan fascinating piece of work. I look forward to, um, to reading about it next year, but it's super to have had you on to, um, to talk about that. As you said, a, a very good example of, you know, large data collection, large audit really being able to inform the consenting process around COVID, which has been, you know, one of the, one of the very difficult practicalities. Lyndon, thank you so much for your time. I will let you get back to your, you know, Christmas cake decorating or whatever it is you've, you've, you, you, you've got on uh, at this time of year. Um, but thank you for joining us. And I hope to speak to you again on the podcast uh, next year. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. It was very kind of you. Thanks now. Take care. Merry Christmas. I'd like to welcome John Phillips from the knee unit at the Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital uh, to the podcast. John contributes to both the ODEP and Beyond Compliance Committees. He's a member of BASC and AO faculty and also the BJ360 editorial team. So I'm excited to hear his perspective, uh, his knee arthroplasty perspective going into 2021. John, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks, Sarah. So, so COVID has a huge impact on, on our life and work, and, and there are a number of obvious ways it's impacted, but but one of the positive ways is it's given myself and my colleagues who work on the Revision Lee Working Group time to put together um, a, a, some guidelines on, and re, on how revision knee surgery in the UK can be restructured. Uh, this is a group put together with, uh, led by one of my colleagues in Exeter, Andrew Toms. Um, and it's something we've been working on for a few years. And, and basically, revision knee surgery in the UK just wasn't really functioning terribly well. It wasn't ideal. Outcomes for revision knee surgery, certainly survival outcomes after infection, um, are actually worse than most cancers. Right. So, okay. so this is this has led to a number of um, initiatives, but but largely 
trying to work out how to restructure surgery. And it's largely based on a sort of hub and spoke model led by MDTs. So that, that collaboration of surgeons is encouraged and, and low volume surgeons are basically, you know, stopped doing surgery. And so the, so the so minimum numbers have come in for a minimum of 15 revision knee operations per year for surgeons who are keen to perform revision knee surgery and, and unit volumes of 30 per year. And, and like I said, it largely follows an NDT approach. And there are a number of audit metrics that are going to be used to sort of monitor performance, such as, such as length of stay, such as uh, mortality, infection rate, and another, other subjects such as numbers that have run through the MDT, numbers performed in each unit, and also the amount of loan kit used. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting, John, because I know when we've spoken about it before, you likened it to sort of the MTC approach. I suppose that this process will go through the sort of learning curve that we did, you know, eight, ten years ago with, with MTC work. Um, if people want to read more about this and things, and um, where can they look for more uh, information about the, the work that you guys have been doing? So, yeah, correct. Good point. The the worry is, or one of the thoughts is that the larger centres may be overwhelmed with work, but that's not to mm. be encouraged. What we're trying to do is to make sure the most complex work gets done in the larger centres, but actually the revisionary work is spread amongst surgeons who are keen, interested and well-trained and are good at doing it. Um, so we've put together a number of um, a number of articles. There are three boasts in revisionary surgery, one for um, sort of planning of services, another for infection, another for uh, for investigation of the problematic knee replacements, and they're, they're, they're freely available on the BOA website. And, and as a group, we also put together, and I helped edit the, um, a number of articles that are now published in the Knee Journal that, are, that discuss um, all the aspects of uh, revision knee surgery, but this is all sort of accumulating in a good, uh, good practice guidelines that should be coming out early 2021. John, thanks so much for joining us. That's, that's really interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out with that and the discussions, especially as you said, you know, the discussions around centralization, but actually what more sounds like a genuine reorganization of services. So yeah, very excited to see what comes of that. And thank you so much for your time. I'm sure you've got a ton of Christmas wrapping to do. So I'll let you get back to that. Um, that's uh, great to speak to you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Take care now. Uh, so I've got a confession to make here because I really would use uh, any excuse to speak to our next podcast guest. But on the basis he, that I always feel more knowledgeable after speaking to him, I thought he'd be excellent value uh, to get him onto our BJ360 festive podcast. Uh, Darren Forward is an orthopedic major trauma consultant in Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham with a particular interest in uh, pelvic, non-union and complex uh, periarticular trauma and also, I know, uh, in chicken farming. Uh, so Darren, thank you very much for joining us. And what top technical tips can you share from 2020? Oh, hi, Sarah. Yeah, so I've got three uh, thoughts on fracture reduction. Uh, so in my mind, yeah, everything's about making it as easy as we can. And generally speaking, if I can get the thing reduced and it'll just sit there for me while I lay some plates on, then that's got to be the best bet. Uh, so the first one I learned, in fact, from my colleague Mark Hatton, who's an excellent surgeon. Mm -hmm. So this is distal femoral fractures now. And uh, if you're going to have to plate it for whatever reason, and I totally accept some people love uh, a retrograde nail. But if we're thinking uh, plating a distal femur, then actually we always reach for the traction table. Uh, so put them up like it's a DHS with the other leg. And then mm -hmm. on the fractured leg, actually leave the support 
supported underneath, put on the traction like you normally would, uh, dragging it straight out. You can adjust the various valves a little bit with the direction of the pull uh, on the traction table. And in general, it will actually just distract things nicely back into a pretty neat position uh, that is well lined up with no one doing anything. Occasionally, you need a uh, bag of saline under the knee if there's any sense of extension in the distal piece and just position that neatly will uh, tend to prevent that happening. And then essentially, you've got a leg that's straight, reduced, uh, easy to take x-rays with because uh, the machine will come in like it would for a DHS so you can yeah. spin through to the lateral and get the AP without any problems. You're not relying on the registrar uh, trying to uh, yeah, remain strong and engaged during an operation that they'll otherwise might be bored in. Yeah. And the whole thing will just uh, play out really quite neat, neatly for you. You can use the usual DHS shower curtain or nailing drape uh, again to keep things simple. And uh, generally I just use a small incision distally to insert the plate in and then a couple of incisions up the leg to, for the proximal screws. And you end up with what can be a difficult operation, uh, I would say rendered pretty easy. Yeah, absolutely. So Christmas present for you, because everything's reduced, Christmas present for the registrar, because they're not, you know, um, hooking this leg off the table. Exactly. So just makes it, yeah, what can be a difficult operation, pretty simple. That is, a, that, that is an awesome top tip. Um, give us your second one then. Uh, second one, other side of the knee, so proximal tibia now. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I'm thinking here kind of uh, Shaska 6 type uh, injuries rather than necessarily a simple 2, let's say. Uh, so, yeah, for those then, I like to construct a little uh, quad frame X-fix uh, before I start. So I would do my usual lateral approach to the proximal tibia and then put a pin through the epicondyles of the distal femur using the wound I've already made. So that's a, a, a bar a, or a pin now going through and through the distal femur. Mm -hmm. And I'll put another one through and through uh, the mid-shaft tibia, so low enough down that I can put my plate in without any problems. And then on either side of those two transverse pins, I connect up my X-fix bars. Uh, Carbon, obviously, so radiolucent won't get in the way of the X-rays. And then uh, some of the systems have these neat little jacks in that you can essentially lengthen the tibia away uh, from the knee uh, on both sides now. So you've got independent control of the medial and lateral rod. So you can gain length if you uh, lengthen both of them and gain or change your angulation if you just lengthen one of them relative to the other. So essentially you start off again with a short kind of uh, impacted Shatska 6 type situation that you then gradually lengthen into a pretty well reduced, correctly aligned fracture. And I do all this with the leg uh, completely flat, straight on a carbon table. And in general, it all lines up seriously well, such that you end up just laying on some plates, you know, either one uh, lateral plate or perhaps a lateral and a medial, depending on how you feel the stability of the fracture is. Again, ultimately, you start the operation after perhaps uh, 10 minutes of constructing this with what is essentially an undisplaced fracture now other than a little bit of minor adjustment around the edge. So again, turns what can be a complex operation into a pretty simple affair. That is a, that is a really neat idea. And um, well, I don't know, I'm somewhat embarrassed that this hasn't occurred to me at all. This is not my experience of Shatsky 6. But yeah, definitely looking forward to giving that one a go, actually. I'll send you some pictures. Nice. 
Uh, and then I understand this is an, uh, this is a recent, uh, this is a, this is hot off the press, this last tip. Yeah, so hot off the press, this one, and uh, yeah, particular genius, I like to think here. So, uh, so this, I'm thinking now, uh, so Viva C fracture, um, you know, typically, so this is the kind of one that in my mind is still on the x-ray film uh, of the ankle, so low enough down that you are going to plate it. And I accept that some people might say, well, I just put screws in here or whatever, absolutely fine, but here's one that I'm plating. So uh, in general, the distal bit of the fibula tends to drift out laterally as part of the fracture complex. And so, yeah, for me, I'm gonna open that up and plate it. And uh, the registrars often try and get these things reduced before they even start, which is kind of what I've uh, expounded for my uh, distal femur and proximal tibia. But actually here often, it's, a, it's quite a struggle to get these reduced and to stay there. And actually uh, what I would tend to do is, is plate um, let's put my plate on from proximal to distal. So let's imagine a pretty transverse uh, C. I'm going to start screwing it from proximal uh, down to distal and it will tend to buttress in mm -hmm. the lateral displacement of the distal uh, fibula to start the reduction. And generally you get a pretty good reduction out of that without even trying, you know, it's, uh, the courses are aligned now, most of it's sitting in the right place. But Obviously, the worry with all VABCs is how much length you've got and, and needing to be sure you're not short. And so my tip here is in the way that uh, the classic AO um, pitfall, I guess, is trying to compress through a plate and using the wrong end of the hole. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's the, you know, the classic AO X-ray of uh, fracture distracted because you <laughs> stuffed up uh, to help the guys understand that you need to have uh, the drill uh, away from the fracture to get your compression. So actually here I'm advocating doing the opposite. So actually eccentrically drill close to the fracture. And as your screw goes in, you'll just get that little bit of extra length out of it to ensure you're not short. And so counterintuitively using the wrong end of the hole actually here is gonna benefit your reduction. And uh, yeah, so that's my final tip for 2020. So for the foot and ankle surgeons listening here, we're talking about with ABC or pronation abduction injuries, where you've got that comminution, length is difficult to, uh, as you say, to achieve and then, you know, pre-plate fixation. So by eccentrically drilling the holes in the distal end of the plate, close to the fracture, you can dial in that length. And presumably, actually, um, you, could, you could do it with one hole for a bit more length, or you could actually even do it with a second hole, needing to remove that first screw to get a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. So what uh, some people advocate using, for example, a screw outside, so fixing distal first, screw outside the plate at the top, laminar spreader, that kind of thing, to yeah. dialing their length through that. And uh, again, great tip, absolutely, yeah, it's got its place for sure. There's difficulty with that sometimes is your distal plate's not quite right, uh, you're stretching it out and, and actually it starts to angulate while you're doing that because the amount of control you've got is relatively limited. So, so it's just a, a different approach to that really. So rather than using that kind of thing with longer wound at the top or, and the problems coming uh, to you from the nerve and exposure is actually yeah, doing uh, it the other way around instead. I think it gives you better control. Um, but as you say, if you need more and more length, you could do it more than once. Yeah, great adjunct. I like it uh that is uh well, yeah okay so that's the that's the gill modification of the forward technique just for <laughs> nice. uh, yeah uh, some of the time it works all of the time uh, <laughs> is this not <laughs> um darren as always awesome value great to speak to you thank you very much for sharing those things um and i'll let you get back to your um 
for your chicken farming festive uh, festive preparations. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Always good to speak to you. My next guest on our festive podcast is Phil Johnson from Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. Uh, Phil is a hand, upper limb and trauma surgeon and he's faculty on both the BSSH and AO trauma instructional courses, including being the AO principals chair. So Phil, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the BJ360 uh, festive podcast and I'm very interested to hear your reflections on practice in 2020. Yeah thank you very much for the invitation. So it's been a really weird year and, and the, the things I've taken away from it really have been this advent of virtual working and prioritization in orthopedics. Hmm. Uh, we, we see ourselves being furloughed, we've seen arthroplasty colleagues unable to work because uh, we can't ring fence beds because the beds are full of patients with illnesses coronavirus right. and other things and so arthroplasty has gone more or less out the window we, we tried to start again over the summer and the autumn and then we've been stopped again um, but in place of that the arthroplasty colleagues and the people with their elective sessions emptied have been doing great things they've been going to a and e uh, and at the front door helping with the minor injuries helping with orthopedic problems in particular and mm -hmm. streamlining a and e so we've seen virtual fracture clinics uh, referrals dropping because people had dealt with at the front door and and rerouted and diverted and getting definitive treatment and triage at the door so we already had a virtual clinic which which kind of reduced our footfall by perhaps a third but we're now reducing that uh, referral to virtual and to fracture clinic even further through having people at the front door making those decisions yeah that is uh, do you know that i'm um, uh, i'm really glad actually you've come and spoken about that i think that is definitely an experience that I have um, seen in Glasgow, that's exactly what happened in our unit as well. Um, as you said, it's a further layer of filter in terms of early decision making with reduced referrals into the virtual clinic because in fact, they're already, uh, the treatment has already started. Um, there's obviously also been issues with access to theatre and you know, I'm interested to hear your um, reflections on that, particularly as an upper limb surgeon, because of course the neck of femur fractures, the non-ambulatory trauma has to come into the hospital but big changes in terms of upper limb injuries. Um, give me your thoughts about that. What have you seen? Any issues? Is it, would it change what you do in 2021? Yes, I think so. So upper limb surgeons are notoriously conservative in their treatment plans. Uh, we've had trials showing us we should be doing less. Some trials on shoulder fractures showing we should be doing nothing. Uh, <laughs> and, and wrist fracture trials showing we should be wiring, not placing. Uh, and, and my practice has already moved towards the conservative. But this first three months of March, April, May and early June, we really had very little access to theatre for that the kind of standard day case upper limb fracture. And so we had to be very critical over what we referred to theatre. Yeah. And so we were treating things more conservatively through um, uh, being forced to do this. And yet the outcomes have not crashed. We haven't seen much worse malunions or non-unions of scaphoid, malunion of distal radius. And therefore probably we, dare I say it, operating too often, perhaps we've been forced to operate less often. I haven't seen a, a car crash as a result. Yeah, we, so we had this conversation because we were like, we're going to have this avalanche of non-unions, mal-unions, uh, you know, painful wrists in the, uh, you know, in the autumn that never seems to have arrived. The only caveat I would say to that is, do you think that that is on the back of a significant front door investment that people have been able to make? Do you think in 2021, should the theatre side fall down, but you know we have uh, less orthopedic input at the front door do you think there'll be a, you'll see something different 
it'd be hard to say that the orthopedic consultant was better than the practice uh, the, the, the practitioner in, in ed for, for manipulating fractures but i think with we, we deployed a little mini c arm to help us and uh, we, we do have some skilled people giving good manipulations at the front door so perhaps that made a difference and we were perhaps more confident that the wrist fracture wasn't going to fall off in the first couple of weeks requiring intervention in theater so that's probably true um, which just shows that really if, if you get the right people doing the right thing at the right time you can minimize your requirement for theater and that's better for everybody and fewer complications and it's cheaper for the nhs as well so there you may be front loading it that may be good beyond that uh, do you know, get, getting it right first time, Phil, you should, you know, the, uh, that's an idea. We should, uh, we should. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah, I, I think, uh, as I said, really interesting to hear your reflections on that. Um, definitely echoes some of my experience and sort of summarize, you know, uh, articulates that really well. And I think is, you know, taking what something that positive out of this year is that we can be brave in terms of our reform of, 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 of what we do just because we've already always done it one way doesn't mean we have to continue we've been forced into virtual working and uh, we've all become experts in zoom and starleaf and teams and all the other various online media but patients don't mind and in fact we've reduced the hand clinic by at least a half in terms of footfall to clinic so the number of telephone consultations we're doing has gone up and the number of people turning up has really, really reduced. And patients are happy. They're saving themselves time. They're, they're being seen at some point in their pathway, but they're being referred for tests, either having a telephone review with the results or being seen after telephone triage at the start. So we are definitely streamlining the service and we're, we're reducing the number of people coming to hospital by a necessity. And that's a great thing for everybody. Patients are also um, much more aware of what they need to have done and they're putting stuff off if it just doesn't need it and it's also you know i think it's very respectful of patient time as well you know we're not having these hugely over overpopulated fracture clinics where people wait around for hours to get an x-ray that actually you know you might you might have said is not really going to change their uh, management at this time bill that is um thank you very much for uh, for summarizing that so nicely and sharing that with the uh, with the podcast listeners um I hope you get some good time off over Christmas and all the best for 2021. Hope we catch up then. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Uh, welcome to our next caller, um, Vitti Bucknell, orthopedic paediatric surgeon at Alderhey Hospital. And I should declare um, my uh, conflict of interest because also excellent friend of mine um, as, uh, as a fellow Scottish training graduate, actually. So Vitti trained in the southeast of Scotland before being, um, yeah, I'm going to say stolen. Uh, south of the border for her, uh, her consultant post this year. Uh, Vitti was a previous BOTA president. Uh, she serves on the subspecialty board for trauma and orthopaedics in the Edinburgh College and she is a newly elected regional SAC representative. So congratulations there, Vitti. Uh, so yeah, Thank you very much. someone with something to say and I, I have to say always worth listening to. So thank you very much for taking time out to join us on our uh, festive podcast. No, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> so polite. Um, so, Vitti, tell us about, same question, what's your 2020 vision? How is it going to affect your 2021? So, uh, for me, some of the lessons that have come from 2020, um, as for, for many people, has been really the most important lesson is looking after your team and keeping your team together. Uh, because having a, a fantastic team around you is absolutely invaluable. Sure. And COVID this year has certainly shook that for a lot of people. 
Yeah, you know that as you say, that is that has been a challenge. I think in you know all walks of life, working work very much included. Tell us about your experience of that. Like, you know, what were the like? Can you put, sort of uh, what were the specifics of that, and and um, and how did you deal with it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I came down here as a fellow, and what struck me first and foremost for older hay was the orthopedic team and how amazingly cohesive the team is and you know having coffees together having lunches together people really a, there to, to help each other out pitch pitch for jobs um Vitty. you can't you can't use this as a <laughs> <laughs> Job, jobs are all taken jobs are all taken okay okay right carry on however you know with covid coming along it, it can really shake even the most the strongest of teams and so for me, uh, seeing how that has challenged our team, it's when we realise that going forward, that's something that needs to be nurtured, just like any other relationship. So I suppose as an example for um, COVID, we were artificially split into team A and team B. Team A were at home while team B worked to protect each other. Right. And, and through doing that, you know, communications were immediately stunted. Um, and then when even when you were at work with one of your sides of the teams, the coffee areas were short, we couldn't go out for our curries, you know, you can't grab a drink after work. So that, you know, not only the formal, but the informal chat that we have that keeps us close, that keeps us talking, that, that makes us, you know, have each other's backs, that was no longer there. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we did find other ways of getting around this by having uh, Zoom beer nights, so beer tastings. Um, we recently had uh, an away day for the orthopedic team, which wasn't exactly very far away. It was just outside an education centre, but it's an opportunity to <laughs> sit down as a group, have some pizza uh, and talk about the problems that we're currently ch- uh, facing and what's going to challenge us into 2021. Yeah, that's awesome, actually. As you say, it's, it's, it's sometimes one of those things you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Um, Absolutely. We've got a tight knit team and lots of informal communication. Yeah, there was a very physical barrier to that this year, um, for sure. So tell us about 2021. Like, you know, what if, is this going to change the way you do stuff? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, we want what we had before. We want our yeah. Christmas nights back, or our summer nights back. But it's really taught us that having dates in the diary is time to put aside for, you know, our work family. So having those dates in the diary um, going forwards are points that we'll all make an effort to to attend to be there but also include some of our fellows so having a fellow alumni so building upon knowing that uh, having a team around is important we're just going to nurture that even more and grow older even more so the message is dates in the diary dates in the diary get yeah. it in the diary get it set get it sorted look after the people around you because by god do they look after you well so well my, my take a message from this are Keep an eye out for job adverts at Alderhey. Um, <laughs> get some, yeah, get some dates in the diary, get some Zoom beers on. Um, Vitti, uh, thanks so much for sharing that. As always, positive as always. Um, and uh, I've interrupted your own call, so I better let you get back, to, get back to that. But when you get a break, please do enjoy your Christmas. And um, uh, yeah, Merry Christmas from us at the 360. Uh, Merry Christmas from us down at Alderhey. Thanks. Bye now. Bye. I'm very grateful to our next guest for joining us on the BJ360 Festive Podcast. Uh, Harbinder Singh is a consultant upper limb and trauma surgeon at Leicester Royal Infirmary and Leicester General Hospital with a PhD in health sciences. Uh, Professor Singh, thank you very much for making time to join us. And I'm really interested to hear about um, some of the research you wanted to talk, uh, talk about that's come out of the circumstances this year. 
Thank you, Sarah, um, for this opportunity. It's been, you know, COVID-19 pandemic has been a situation of lifetime, and but I think there are some opportunities in it. And one of the key things that I'm interested in is how to include virtual assessments of these patients. Uh, being a shoulder surgeon, um, you know, the technology is already there. Like if you look at the newer iPads, which are coming out, they've got LiDAR technology already in there. So my research is focused on how we can use the patient's smartphones to assess their shoulder range of movements and their limitations. So the markers are not required. We just virtually assess them sitting at the end of the phone or an iPad and you can look at their range of motion. And this is going to be uh, you know, validated by Vicon cameras in Cambridge University. So this technology mm -hmm. as it's being developed and we assess them and we compare it with the Vicon um, cameras. So it should be quite interesting how this pans out over future. That's, that is, uh, that sounds really promising. I've got to say, it's one of the conversations that comes up with colleagues in terms of what can we do safely virtually and what do patients have to come to see us about? And obviously imaging is something that brings them to hospital, but no, but uh, one of the things that I always thought would you know mean that people need to come to hospital is a physical assessment. But this is actually something that you're saying we can accurately do in terms of range of movement. A lot of shoulder pathologies can be safely assessed from home now. It is a product which is in development, but hmm. you know a lot of these assessments can be done virtually with use of prompts and patient questionnaires, and in addition we can have these virtual assessments through cameras, we can look at their problems. But you know, it is a segmental problem, is most of the time, if you understand a frozen shoulder will have a limitation in a certain range, and yeah. impingement will have limitation in a certain range, and these can be virtually picked up, but this needs to be developed further. And what sort of, uh, you know, technological know-how is, is will the patient need to have in order to be able to, to engage with these assessments? So um, they'll be, they should be able to use their smartphones. Um, they don't have to use any technology on it. They'll be uh, given access to an app which they can log in and that will allow us to virtually assess them uh, just through the app. Um, you know, this technology is already being used by hearing services. They can virtually adjust all the hearing aids through their apps and i think this can be this has a big role uh, in other fields also so that's why we're looking into shoulder pathologies and how we can assess them virtually i think being able to you know virtually assess patients especially a patient population you might not want to be coming in to hospital during these times um, but being able to continue to deliver their care that's that's very exciting and uh, i really look forward to maybe seeing some more stuff about that in uh, 2021 i look forward to your publishings on that Thank you very much. Well, look, thank you so much for taking time out um, of, a, of a, well, everyone's busy week and in the run up to Christmas. So from everyone at the BJ360, have a very nice uh, break. I'm, ho I'm hoping you're not working all the time um, and catch up in 2021. Thank you, Sarah. Thank, thank you so much. What an interesting call there with uh, Professor Singh. Another example uh, or proof rather that necessity really is the mother of invention and um, a further example of innovation coming out of this strange 2020 year. I'm kind of interested to see not only how that virtual assessment can play a role in um, uh, patient uh, preoperative workup and initial consultations, but also maybe the application um, to follow up and the collection of uh, you know, accurate examination findings that could augment 
um, you know, research uh, without the, the patient needing to come into the hospital. So thank you to Professor Singh again for joining us for that call. Uh, so continuing on um, with our festive jaunt through the callers today, um, we are uh, joined next actually by a familiar voice in UK orthopaedics. Mark Bowditch is a knee surgeon in Ipswich and Colchester. Having served as a previous trustee, council and committee member, Mark is the BOA treasurer-elect. He's also the current head of School of Surgery uh, in East of England having previously been an SAC chair. So um, as a man with an eye uh, for the bigger picture, I'm really interested to hear your reflections on 2020, Mark, and, and where we're headed. Good evening, Sarah, and thanks very much for asking me to uh, speak to you tonight. Um, so my reflections this year have been, uh, like many, on many topics, but one of the main issues in orthopaedics is that if we have no training for our future surgeons and we will not have any surgeons of the future and um, I'm sure you've been aware of the stark data that's come out of the JCST and the logbooks that the elective training has really fallen off a cliff since um, the first lockdown um, and, and, and that is a, a real problem and I've, it's reignited my um, wish to try and um, take every single opportunity, maximize every training opportunity that's available, whether whether it's in clinic, whether it's in the ward, whether it's uh, just uh, walking around the hospital to discuss and make every opportunity I have with the um, trainee a training one. Um, it's one of those things, it's been a, as you said, there's been a, uh, the change in system over COVID has been, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious the detrimental effect it's had in terms of elective training it's been a bit of a depressing time and therefore it's kind of nice to speak to you and hear, you know, actually this is a time for reignition of passion about training, not sort of, oh God, everything's really difficult, um, but it's actually more, what can I do about that? It's difficult because there's a lot of pressure uh, to clear the backlog of waiting lists, but unless we take the opportunity to make sure that we give these opportunities across to our trainees, then roll forward we won't have any surgeons for tomorrow i should say that that mark is joining us after a uh, a busy list in uh the private sector in well in private hospital um and there's been training going on today so this is sort of in action so give us a sort of an idea of how you what have you been doing to get those training opportunities into your day-to-day -day practice so uh, as part of my role of head of school, we've been very keen in the East of England to ensure that uh, any work that's lifted and shifted to the in independent sector, such as my list today, um, um, the trainee comes too. So that's part of the memor memorandum of understanding that we have with the lift and shift. Um, and um, in order to do that, uh, it takes quite a bit of preparation, um, but it's absolutely essential. So that's the sort of background and then on the day, um, have to have an agreement with the team, with the anaesthetist, with the, uh, with the scrub team. At the huddle, we decide which cases the trainee is going to do. Um, we agree that the trainee is going to do at least 60 to 70% of the list, um, uh, three out of four cases if possible. We choose them. We've discussed them beforehand. And all members of the staff recognise that even if it's at four o'clock and we've got a case to go, then I might do that last case. So they're, so they're not edging and hassling to say the consultant must do it. 
So it's, it's about teamwork and about um, an agreement, a sort of contract between the whole team that um, there's an understanding that we're here to um, train the trainee and if they don't get the opportunities then they won't progress. And you know you you clearly are, are leading that you're leading that conversation and you're engaging the the theater team and, and and those around you in clarifying that this is an important part of the day is the training of our future surgeons um some people will be listening to this and thinking mm, i'm worried i might encounter resistance with that conversation have you encountered any resistance uh, and if so how did you deal with that well, I think um, no one likes to overrun, so you have to plan mm -hmm. your list, plan it with the extra time that the trainee might require. Um, and if you don't do that, then you'll, you'll end up upsetting people and they'll be more resistant next time. It helped today because I, I brought um, presents for the whole team. They're <laughs> gifts, you see, so I, I landed that with them early on in the, in the who huddle at the beginning of the day, and of course everybody was happy to carry on. Yeah, very, you're right. Very difficult to uh, very very difficult to provide resistance uh, when when plied with uh, uh, with bottles alcoholic. Of yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, so trainers and in fact trainees, uh, there you go. Turn up to the huddle uh, with uh, ha ha having stopped at uh, at Sainsbury's beforehand. Um, well, Mark, thank you very much. Honestly, in what has clearly been a very busy day and a very productive day, thank you for dropping in uh, to the BJ360 uh, festive podcast. Going forward, in, in I think if we're waiting for this to stop in order to start restart training, we will lose um, a significant amount of training. Absolutely, and I, I find that um, um, the trainees bring a huge amount to the day. They help educate me on lots of things, and uh, it's a really invigorating experience. So I, I'll rue the day if we don't have trainees. Having made everyone else do the heavy lifting and supply the content uh, for this podcast episode, I thought it was time that I made a contribution. Uh, we've heard on a variety of themes. Uh, from my notes, um, organisational change, research, training, clinical decision-making, technical tips. And I want to pull together some of these themes and offer up a couple of things that were part of my orthopaedic 2020. The first topic that I wanted to offer up is a combo of technical tip and teaching because 2020 has definitely been the year of the Zoom teaching session, which is great because it's meant that at a time when the training has been really squeezed, trainees have had access to learning from a wider pool of trainers than otherwise would have been possible. And a topic that often seems to come up both in requests for formal teaching and on a day-to-day -day basis with trainees is pelvic fractures, particularly pelvic ring fractures, uh, because I think trainees suspect that they're more likely to come up in the FRCS and acetabular fractures and I think it also reflects that pelvic fractures in general are not always hugely well covered in pre-CCT training. And I'm not going to attempt to summarise pelvic fractures in two minutes, but what I have got is a very specific tip or concept that seems to resonate well with trainees. Uh, this tip relates to both manipulating CT reconstructions preoperatively and deciding what views you're looking at and what views you might need intraoperatively. So my little nugget is, that the pelvis is a composite structure so an AP pelvis is actually a view of nothing and all the other views like inlet outlet etc are in fact APs laterals and axials of the structures making up the pelvis ring so extrapolating that my tip is don't fixate on rote learning what views you need 
but move from a prescriptive to intuitive approach towards pelvic imaging interpretation. So for example, the pelvic outlet view is actually an AP view. And the inlet view is the axial view of the pelvic ring. And it can be centered on whatever part of the ring is of interest, be it the back, at the sacrum, the whole pelvic ring, or the front of the pubis. So when considering uh, the iliosacral corridor, you need an inlet view to show you the front to back position of your wire or screw, and you need an outlet to show you your superior inferior position. When considering the suprastabular corridor, an inlet and slightly iliac oblique or that down the wing will give you an axial view of that supraacetabular corridor, whereas an outlet obturator oblique will give you an AP of the corridor. You can apply this concept to any part of the pelvic ring. And obviously all the trainees listening will have asked Father Christmas for a pelvic sore bone for Christmas. Um, but alternatively, you would be able to find one in theatres. So sit down and work your way through this idea and talk it through with your local pelvic surgeon. And the second thing that I want to talk about is collaborative research. And look, I know this isn't new to 2020, but I wanted to give it some air time because I think there's a type of clinical collaborative that's really picked up the pace this year. Published research on this topic from 10 years ago showed that fewer papers were published from orthopedic collaborative research studies than any other surgical specialty. Now, of course, this has changed because of the multi-center pragmatic trials that are booming. Draft, UCUF, ORIF, fixed ET, and the ongoing WAX and SOFT trials, the list is impressive and growing. And the data these trials collect lends itself to heterogeneity and wider relevance. They've replaced the single center cohort studies and the single surgeon in my hands research. And their size and inclusive nature lend them to be addressing the bigger questions. Now, this is a personal opinion, but what these trials gain in breadth, they have to lack in fine-grained detail. They shape my practice broadly, but I don't think they help with my clinical decision-making on a case-by-case -case basis or that they help me advise the patient in front of me in clinic. And I'm happy to debate this in future, but I think I'm always going to find well-designed RCTs or cohort studies valuable for that. So I'm really encouraged by the increased output of existing multi-center collaboratives and the formations of new ones in the last year. I think it's a real comment and a real strength of our collective psyche that in times of uncertainty, we've looked to work together. We've read the work coming from the Impact Study Group and others elsewhere in the UK, and I think it's very exciting to see this enthusiasm. My experience of contributing to collective research this year is that you're able to answer a question in a more robust way with a bigger data set that's more representative. You're able to refine your research question because two heads are better than one. But it still allows for scientific rigor and tight data collection. It means you can answer a detailed clinical question despite limited numbers in any one individual center. And there's the hidden benefits, such as pooling enthusiasm and resources that helps you get the work done. So my take home message when I think about research questions now is I just ask myself, would this be better answered with more numbers, a wider population, or do I actually need help in terms of study design? And if the answer is yes, I'm going to present it to the research collaborative. And if you're listening to this and thinking, well, I'm not in one, then ask your colleagues, ask your neighboring units and get involved in 2021. That brings us to the close of the episode. Uh, I can't thank enough all of my guests for their time and insights. I've really enjoyed making this episode and it's been a privilege to have them involved. I'm looking forward to a future podcast and ongoing conversation in 2021. 
I think now more than ever, it's really vital for us to maintain a dialogue. And if there's anything that you'd like us to discuss, anything you'd like to invite us to cover, please get in touch via our website uh, or tweet us uh, at BoneJoint360. Whether you celebrate Christmas or not, I hope you will get a much needed break over the next couple of weeks. And I look forward to our next episode in January with a bumper journal club episode focused on trauma in the context of the annual OTS meeting. So from everyone at Bone and Joint 360, stay safe and well and see you in the new year.